Good morning again. Let's pray. Father, I am a desperate man for the carrying, the filling of Your Holy Spirit that would cause me to speak truth, to represent the Scripture faithfully, and thus would You instruct us all in what I have to say this morning. Would You work by Your Spirit the truth of Holy Scripture into our hearts and not only our minds to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Over, over the last few weeks, I've spent most of the time showing that Pentecostal theology and the charismatic theology in a couple of different areas, why it's biblically inaccurate. This morning is week seven in the series, The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do today is to draw lessons. First, from the book of Acts of the Apostles. And then as we close, to draw lessons from this phenomenon that has hit the earth over the last hundred years of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. So first, let's turn to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. And as we look at verses 4 and 5 for a moment, just, just picture this. These people have been taught and been being taught at this point by the resurrected Jesus for five weeks. They know the truth of the gospel, the life, now the sacrificial death on the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's standing in front of them. They have been commissioned to preach by Jesus. Got all that? And yet, Jesus says to them that there's something that is vital for them to have that they do not yet have. Start with verse 4, chapter 1 of Acts. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wasn't it enough to have walked with Jesus for three years? And then for weeks to be being taught by Him post-resurrection? Evidently not. Jesus says to these guys, don't move. Don't go out preaching. Don't go church planting until you receive power. And in the flow of Acts, we see what that means. Until what we read here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay. So then, days, ten days later, probably after Jesus ascended, suddenly, 120 in the upper room, and they hear audibly a sound like rushing or strong wind. And they see something with their physical eyes. Little flickers of flame. And each flame resting on each one of the 120. And the text says the effect was that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then through their vocal cords came out languages that their own minds did not understand. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, look down there, we find out what at the core, what were they saying in these other tongues? And we read, because Luke has given us this picture of all these Jews from spread out through the Roman Greek world were visiting there for Pentecost, and they had all these different languages that are their languages they speak back home. And they said in verse 2, what are we at? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So, whatever these other tongues were, what, they were, what was being said was they were praising, worshiping, telling of the great things of God. And now you jump down to verse 16, where Peter begins to preach to the crowds and he explains what's happening. Because a lot of people are well, these, these people drunk? And Peter says, they're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So, Peter says, the sound of wind, those little flames, flickering flames of fire resting on each one of them. The being filled with the Spirit. The speaking in other tongues. He says, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel foretold hundreds of years before. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quote, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so, Jesus says to His disciples, wait! Wait until you are dunked. Immersed, just the word baptism, in the Spirit. The immersion of what the prophet Joel said would happen. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And it's confirmed if you look down to verse 32 of chapter 2. Peter's still preaching, and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, that's Jesus, and Jesus having received from the Father 
the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Okay, now, what exactly is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? I mean, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the wind that blew? Is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the little visible flames of fire? Is the outpouring of the Spirit speaking in tongues? Is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit new birth? Regeneration? I don't think so. I think it's... Although all these things are closely tied, especially new birth with it, but I think it's something beyond new birth. And to try to show that, first turn to the end of Luke. The end of the Gospel of Luke. The first clue of what is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. After His resurrection, Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, You are witnesses of these things. And behold... I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until, there it is again, until you are clothed with power from on high. So, preach. He's he's commissioning them. I'm sending you to preach. You're witnesses. But don't go yet. Wait for the baptism of the Spirit. Wait. For the clothing of the Spirit. Clothing with power to witness. To preach. And you can see that with the second clue in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Where Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for power to witness, to preach, to, with boldness, say the truth of the Gospel, to serve people, to love. And the third clue is what we have already seen with Peter. Peter said, this is what Joel prophesied. Peter did not turn to Ezekiel 11 or Ezekiel 36 or Jeremiah 32 or Moses talking about God will one day circumcise your heart. These passages that refer more specifically to new birth, to being born again. He didn't go there. He said this is what Joel prophesied about. About the outpouring on All of God's people. Not just clergy. Or prophets. Or judges. Or priests. All of God's people. Young and old. He will pour out His Spirit. They'll prophesy. They'll they'll encourage with words. They will be ministering one to another with the outpouring of the Spirit. And the fourth clue is we saw last week, as you go through the book of Acts and you look at all these differing infillings that would happen again and again, they're almost always related to preaching or speaking boldly. In other words, to the witness of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In chapter 2, verse 4, they're all filled with the Spirit, right? What happened later that day? 3,000 people were converted. You go to chapter 4, and Peter is preaching before the Jewish hierarchy, and they're not very pleased. And he's filled with the Spirit to boldly speak with his life in danger. In chapter 4, verse 31 of Acts, we read, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. In chapter 6, verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which Stephen was speaking. In chapter 13, verses 9 to 10, Paul, excuse me, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at this musician guy and said, You son of the devil. (laughs) Boldly speaking and proclaiming. The Holy Spirit's outpoint at its core is it's not all these other little signs that may or probably mostly don't happen. We we discussed why these manifestations a couple weeks ago, what God was doing in the transition of history. But one thing is for sure that the outpoint of the Holy Spirit has to do with empowerment within believers for ministry. To speak and see the truth or you won't speak it clearly to others. And we still live in a lost and a dying world today. And world evangelization is not over with. And therefore we, the body of Christ in the earth, are still today in dire need for infillings of the Holy Spirit to boldly witness to lost souls in this world. It is power to speak boldly within the church, outside of the church. Now with that in mind, I want you to turn back, if you're not there, to Acts chapter 2. And I want to glean a couple lessons of what we see in Acts 2, verses 1 to 4 in the upper room. Start with the first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, And suddenly, there came from heaven. I want to stop on that word suddenly for a moment. These people have been together for at least ten days, reading Bible, praying. I mean, they had a theology of the Holy Spirit. Peter had Joel memorized, okay? He was ready to preach. And then the tenth day comes... And the text says, as they're together, it didn't happen on the ninth day or the eighth day or the seventh day or the sixth day. On the tenth day, here, suddenly, something happened. And that suddenly shows us that the Holy Spirit is free. The Holy Spirit 
is sovereign. He will not be manipulated by us human beings. He can and He does choose to allow people to experience to one degree or another suddenly not based upon our human manipulations like I got a system okay going to dunk you in the water boom and then you're going to get filled with the spirit or come down the aisle oh let me give you the holy spirit let me lay hands on you and you know let your tongue start saying some weird syllables and the holy spirit will fill you or I even had one of you here in this church tell me of a past experience where the pastor, there was a paper cloud, and he grabbed it from the top, because it's the cloud of Moses, right? And he would stand over people and say, the Holy Spirit is upon you or something. So you can, we can do all we want, but the Holy Spirit Himself is sovereign. And He will move as He will. See, because of those kinds of things, with this Holy Spirit language and the Pentecostal charismatic culture, this is why there has been this term that has developed over the last hundred years, culturally, called revival meeting. You can see it out in front of churches. Revival meeting coming Sunday to Thursday, 7 p.m. What does it mean? It probably means there's a visiting revival preacher who's coming, who's flamboyant, very outgoing, and he knows how to pump up a crowd. We're going to have revival. He's going to pump up a crowd and we're going to call it being filled with the Spirit and everyone's all excited. Oh, and by the way, they know exactly when that Holy Spirit's going to do it. It's going to be 7 p.m. from Sunday to Thursday, but... I don't think so. He is free. Suddenly, the text says, the Holy Spirit will not be boxed in by us humans. By our cultural, I mean churchly, all churches have culture. There is no church in existence long enough that does not have culture to it. And sometimes we think culture of how we sing or how we do or what comes in the liturgy of our church. Oh, that ain't right. We sometimes get confused and think that's Bible. Okay. But our, it's not necessarily. He doesn't submit to our human manipulations. Now, let me say something. Biblically, we are told by the Holy Spirit. Oh, don't forget that sermon a few weeks ago. We are told to live a particular way, to practice the means of grace. Like listening to the Word of God being preached and letting it affect your heart and your mind and your life. That's a means of grace. Reading your Bible prayerfully, worshipfully. Fellowshipping with believers in your local church and the body of Christ. 
being rebuked by them and encouraged by them and built up by them and each other so that we will persevere in the faith. The Lord's Supper being shared together is an ongoing means of grace. Congregational singing is a means of God's grace. We are called to ongoing obedience to practice the means of grace. But ultimately, suddenly. And that suddenly, as we are obedient, is up to the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit. Let's go go back and read on in chapter 2. Start with verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, that is little separate flames, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Okay, see, for here and what happened on that day, it appears that the Holy Spirit is free. It appears He's free enough to even cause physical, phenomenological manifestations of His presence. We certainly see it throughout the Bible. You you see it in the Old Testament, don't we? Cloud by day. Pillar of fire by night. Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. And the text says, And the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and then eardrums were hit. There was an audible voice speaking, this is my beloved Son. In Acts chapter 4, I just read, they prayed, and the building shook. He could evidently do that if he so chooses. So, God can, and He has acted even in phenomenological ways. Dealing with our five senses. Sight, hearing, or touch, the building shake. I could, I could feel it. Why is the big question. Why does He do these kinds of things by His Spirit? And here's another question you should at least ponder. Especially if you know not just Bible, but church history. Why does He do stuff for some and not for others? Why does the Holy Spirit move in history in really strong ways at particular times and places and not so much at other times? places. Here's the best answer I can give you. His reasons are left to the eternal counsel of God. His hidden purposes. Which means, okay, I quit. I I can't figure that out. It's not none of my business anyway. Those are God's hidden purposes purposes. But we know He is sovereign 
And He can move and He can cause people to be filled with the Holy Spirit suddenly. That's what the text says there in Acts 2.4. Now watch what's going on in that upper room. These people have a theology of salvation. They got the gospel. They have. And we certainly know Peter does, but I'm assuming many of the 120 have this theology of the Holy Spirit. Peter knows Joel down pat. The text says, and they were suddenly filled. Not with a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They were suddenly filled, not with thoughts about what God's doing in the earth. In the text, these 120 persons were filled with the experience of the Holy Spirit of God. And they worshipped Him, proclaimed His greatness in a way and to an extent that they did not ten minutes before. Is that faithful to the text? Now, we as a church here at Sovereign Grace are very conscious about and we're very passionate about this. Look at the text of the Bible. All through it. The only ultimate authority of truth and practice is no minister or pastor in the world it is ultimately the Scripture. To which gives ministers and pastors a particular type of authority underneath the Scripture because it's in the Scripture. But this is the ultimate authority. And so we look at the text. Read it in its own context. Don't read stuff into the text. Work hard at coming to the intended meaning in particular portions of the Bible. And so it is the text of Scripture that leads me to the conclusion that we are meant to obey the text that we spent our time in last week. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or the way Paul said, seek to experience peace and joy in believing. The way he says in Romans. What a danger there is for the intellectual type Christian, which I hope all Christians would grow in their intellect, but what a danger there is to obtain lots of theology and biblical knowledge and to think, okay, I got that. I can argue any other Christian under the carpet with Bible and theology and logic, but not think you're in desperate need every day to be filled with the presence of God's Holy Spirit to help you bear the fruit of loving people. As local churches in the world today in 2012, we are called to yearn for more sovereign suddenlies in our midst. We can't manipulate it, but we can and we're called to pray for it We're called to be thirsty as the deer pants for the water brook. And I think history bears out that 
There are differing measures of the Holy Spirit's suddenlies. Okay, it's going to get. Okay, how do I make this transition? I want to kind of flash back. I mean, the Holy Spirit suddenly saved me or caused me to be regenerated, and Christ's cross was applied to my life. I didn't know what happened. It took me a while to figure out what happened. Okay, and I ended up within a church that it was coming out of or had its roots in Pentecostalism, charismatic movement. And so they would teach me a whole lot about the Azusa Street Revival and the Holy Spirit's outpouring. The latter day rain has fallen. Okay, In the back of my mind as a young Christian, there was this thought that was just there. I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I was young. I don't know much. I'm just trying to learn. And it was this. What was the Holy Spirit doing for 1,800 years before 1906? That always bugged me. Was He working in the earth? Okay, I'm in a different place. I think I've come to some answers over the years. But let me just give you a little analogy. I'm sorry if you're not so culturally up on American Idol. See, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about Azusa Street Revival, this, what we've been talking about for two weeks, charismatic movement, Pentecostalism. Okay, There's a way in which emphasis are made in different circles of church and at different times during church history. And here's the big emphasis of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Spirit. He's moving. And, okay, well, just because people say stuff doesn't mean it's so. For instance... If you, if you know American Idol, it is amazing how many human beings are out there that actually believe they can sing. And they're not joking. They actually think they can sing. I can sing. I'm great. I'm great. And they give them this, because they want those interviews. They want to draw people like us to watch it. And oh, I can't believe it's a human being like that. I don't care. Proof of the pudding is stand in front of the judges there in that little room and sing. And it is amazing. They, so many who think they're so positive about their theology of singing, can't sing a note. And there's others who don't have all that confidence at all. I don't know, it's my last chance. And they get in front of the judges and they sing like an angel. It's not about verbiage. See, that same dynamic is the same concerning many who proclaim the Holy Spirit's anointing. And they usually call their ministry something like that. It's the Holy Spirit's anointing ministry. So what? Sing! And you will know them by their voice. But you'll know them by their fruit. And you watch so many that, that, that speak a lot about the filling of the Holy Spirit, the movement of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. But just listen. Does it sing? And you find out it doesn't. Listen long enough and you find out how much that ministry, that church, that theology moves away from the truth of this book and from the centrality of the book called the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It happens over and over again. But there are others who don't flaunt Holy Spirit language throughout church history. And even many who 
are cessationists who say, I don't even believe the Holy Spirit operates in those kind of gifts like these other people say. And yet the Holy Spirit powerfully moves in their midst because of faithfulness in preaching the Scripture. You see, I think St. Augustine, late 300s, early 400s, I think St. Augustine was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I think St. Augustine experienced fillings of the Holy Spirit. Evidenced by his pastoral ministry in Hippo. Evidenced by his standing against the heresy of Pelagianism. I think Martin Luther in the 1500s, when he's called to a legal court in front of the religious and secular authorities of his day, with his life at stake, told to recant these books on the table that he has written. It wasn't easy for him. He wanted one more day, and he fought that whole night through. I'm convinced Martin Luther was filled with the Spirit, that when he got up that next day, he said, unless Scripture or conscience convicts me that what I have written in these books is wrong, I cannot recant Here I stand. You heard the names Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelistic preachers of all time, John Wesley. Back in the 1700s, these three, lots of other leaders, but these three became the main renowned leaders of an extraordinary suddenly of the Holy Spirit. We call it in American church history, or American history in general, you can't study any faithful American history without hearing the term the first great awakening here on the eastern seaboard of New England. Where unprecedentedly the Holy Spirit just fell for a period of about two years in the early 1740s. And all kinds of church members were becoming Christians. And non-church members were becoming Christians. Edwards is preaching the same truths. And God is just falling. That's the point. Edwards has been a pastor for 20 years. He's been preaching every Sunday for 20 years. And then, suddenly, for two years, there was a mind-boggling Holy Spirit non-human, manipulated salvation of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. People who sat in church all their life would sit another Sunday and somehow hear everything differently. And it might cause some of them to be so emotional that there were physical manifestations. That's not unusual, isn't it? Isn't that how it works? I mean, I had someone mocking me yesterday because I get emotional over a Notre Dame football game. What does that mean? I couldn't control it. I could could actually say, you want to pay me $1,000? I promise you I will sit and say nothing for $1,000. But I don't want to! It's not as enjoyable. 
Okay, so there's nothing really physically hitting me, nothing making me where I can't resist it, but there's something about really having a heart desiring particular things to happen in a stupid football game that could cause you to scream. Okay, that's a fun one. But th- just, just think about what happens here with, with, in physical manifestations with people. You're a mother. It's 1943. You see two uniformed army officers walk up the step. Before they knock, she may fall to the ground. Why? No one hit her? Because our body is connected to our affections, our emotions, our passions, our desires, our fears, our joys, and our hopes. And yes, we could control them. We can have cultures that cause us to control them. And we ought to to an extent. It's called being nice to other people. And you can fake all of that like my sister did in mocking me yesterday. But because she faked it, it didn't mean mine wasn't real. I don't know where all that just came from. Other than this is what was happening in the 1740s. You see, well, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me quote Jonathan Edwards. And, and Edwards, in many people's mind, and certainly in mine, is probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced, and probably one of the greatest philosophers America has ever produced. He writes, quote, From the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption in its effects has mainly been carried on by extraordinary communications of the Holy Spirit of God. Though there is a constant influence of God's Spirit, always in some degree attending His ordinances, or just everyday life practicing the means of grace, okay? Attending His ordinances, yes. Yet, the way in which the greatest things have been done toward carrying on this work always have been by remarkable outpourings at special times. Like he was going through in the early 1740s. When the first great awakening, it lasted and it just kind of like, it's like the Holy Spirit lifted in the way that he was doing things. When the dust settled, there were many clergy who questioned whether that was a true revival of God or of the Holy Spirit or not. Sides were taken. And both sides, in my opinion, were wrong. For differing reasons. There were those against it because as mothers fall to the ground when they get the message that their son was been, has been killed in the war. It's true. People... So just, just let me use that analogy for a minute. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's what it means to really love your son and to really grieve? Okay, let's get a Holy Spirit revival of grieving and let's make the falling to the ground the thing. Okay. Some of you know this has been a kind of a pattern. That, that, that was happening in the 1740s. What was different about the revival there than so, these so-called revivals nowadays is that they were preaching the Bible. 
They were preaching deep theology. Go read Jonathan Edwards' sermon that he preached during the early 1740s called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And people sometimes could not control their vocal cord and their fear during his preaching of it. Okay. There were those who saw groups of people not thinking very clearly, would start to make these physical manifestations the main thing. Which is crazy. And I think they were right. But they threw the baby out with the bathwater. The whole thing's got to be wrong. I mean, can the Holy Spirit truly be working when human beings screw up? Yes, He can. And He always has. And it's been no other way throughout church history. Then on the other side, of course, there were those who just didn't want to think through anything. It's just so awesome. Let's not even think through it. Whatever. Let's embrace everything that's happening and not even think theologically about it all. And just embrace it. So there's battles going on. Edwards finally couldn't keep his mouth shut. He had to write a book on it and talk about the revival. And Edwards came down in the middle. Edwards knew how to chew and spit out the sticks and still eat the hay. Edwards understood God is sovereign. And God can do what He wants to do. When the Gospel is being faithfully preached, And people are being moved, not merely in mind, in heart. It's a glorious thing. You can see it in Scripture. It may have even some physical manifestations for some kinds of peoples. And he also knew the danger people can start to kind of copy those physical manifestations and say it's the Holy Spirit and it's no more the Holy Spirit than a hole in the wall. And so he so masterfully in another book and I think the best book ever written on what happens to a human being who is being saved. It's called A Dissertation Concerning Religious Affections. And it's a masterpiece. What is it to be saved? Edwards knew there were all kinds of false conversions in the revival, and he knew there were all kinds of genuine conversions. Having said that now, for the last next final 20 minutes, 15 minutes or so, what I want to do, having spent two weeks of dealing with some core issues in theology on the Pentecostal charismatic movement and arguing against why they're wrong theologically, I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about some pros and some cons of the charismatic movement. Okay? Let's go first with the cons. The negative to watch out for and the effect it's had on the church. The first is this. The teaching that the baptism in the Holy Spirit or and or, a lot of times they're kind of put together in, in these circles, the filling of the Holy Spirit always comes with the necessary evidence of speaking in other tongues. 
Their argument is, look at Acts 2. Look at Acts 10. Look at Acts 19. The three times tongues mentioned in Acts. In all those cases, all those believers were filled and they all spoke in tongues. And you can probably add Acts chapter 8. It doesn't say they spoke in tongues, but when the Holy Spirit fell, it said that Simon, that musician, hey, I want that. He saw something, so maybe that's what he saw. Well, let me just say this first. My daughter's reading a book by a guy named Athanasius for one of her high school classes. A great saint who stood for the truth of the deity of Christ during the 300s. See, Athanasius never spoke in tongues. St. Augustine never spoke in tongues. Luther, Calvin, Edwards never spoke in tongues. And yet I'm not willing to say they were not baptized in the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's not my argument. That's just an experiential opinion. Here are my arguments. I have five of them. Why this doctrine that the necessary evidence of being filled and or baptized with the Holy Spirit is speaking in other tongues. His first argument is this. It is nowhere taught in the New Testament. The New Testament nowhere teaches that the necessary sign is that a person will always speak in tongues when the baptized are filled with the Holy Spirit. All we have concerning tongues, in that sense, are narratives describing what happened. It's a little bit different than blatant teachings. For instance, the Apostle Paul clearly teaches us the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are to hold to it. We are to embrace it. We are to pass it on. We are to say, this is the truth. This is what you are to believe. We are to say the evidence of salvation. This is a necessary evidence. That when you hear the Gospel, there is something in you that believes in the life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just there in narratives. It is taught as the Gospel. So we are to take it. Okay. Nowhere in the New Testament is it ever taught that being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit means you necessarily will speak with other tongues. That's my first argument. Second argument. What is clearly taught concerning the baptism of the Spirit, the fillings of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit, is that it is power for witness. Witness to the Gospel, to Christ. Thirdly, Luke gives us nine other conversion experiences, besides the ones we've looked at last couple weeks, nine other conversion experiences in the book of Acts and never says a thing about them speaking in tongues. Fourth, as to, if you have not listened to the sermon from two weeks ago, then go do it because that's where I spent on the fourth argument. That in chapter 2 of Acts, chapter 8 of Acts, chapter 10 and chapter 19 of Acts, there are other 
<laughs> really strong arguments of why they all spoke in tongues on those occasions. And in short, it is the extension of the day of Pentecost to the other groups, non-Jewish groups, and a witness to the Jewish leadership that yes, non-Jews can be saved by Jesus. And my fifth argument is that the only other place where tongues is mentioned in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. And in chapter 12, Paul says, and to some, not all, and to some were given the gift of tongues. Then, later in chapter 12, he says, do all speak in tongues? The implied answer is no. We all know that. Okay. In the context of why Paul said that now, he is correcting sinners who happen to be being saved. He's correcting the Corinthian church for their unloving, insensitive, and arrogant behavior that is going on. There are church members in Corinth who are feeling ostracized because they don't have a, this visible verbal gift of prophecy or speaking in tongues or something like that. And they're feeling belittled. Paul knows this. And so this is why he writes what he writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. I'll pick up with verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are necessary or indispensable. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No. And so Paul's point is, stop belittling others with your arrogance and unloving behavior. All don't speak in tongues. Right here in the first century, they don't. Second con, or what I think to be a negative consequence the Pentecostal charismatic type movement and teachings that come with it is the constant tendency for many, not all, but I've been 31 years and this is just first-hand experience. The constant tendency to look 
for guidance, quote-unquote, from the Holy Spirit over against where the Holy Spirit has clearly guided. Called the Bible. Let me say it again. To look for guidance of the Holy Spirit over against the Scripture. They got the we should experience God, the Holy Spirit. Because if you're a good exegete, it's all over the Scripture. They got that part right. Where many, by application, get it wrong. Is We should try to experience the Holy Spirit regardless of what the Bible says. And that's not how the Holy Spirit leads. The movements with the Holy Spirit emphasis, the negative is, they have produced in a lot of people a false dichotomy between head and heart. This is just another reason why Edwards, in the book I told you, a dissertation concerning religious is, 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 is a masterpiece. And it's so biblical. And he leaves no stone unturned. The head, what you think, Understanding what is actually written in the Bible is never to be disassociated from your heart and vice versa. The essence of being a Christian is hearing clearly the Gospel that's outside of you. And then your heart, because of the Holy Spirit, says, Yes! And you embrace it. But there's been this separation of head and heart. Oh, don't give me a theological argument, brother. Just, just, just be led by the Spirit. Much of what many people claim in charismatic, Pentecostal churches, and even actually other churches, when they say stuff like, the Holy Spirit told me, the Holy Spirit led. I do know this. Millions of times when that's said, it's not the Holy Spirit. And just look, you just what you just did is contradict what he's clearly said. So it can't be. Scripture is and always will be the measure of truth. For any so called dream or visions or impressions or feelings any Christian gets. Peter even said, I am positive. On that mountain, God spoke and said, This is my beloved son. Peter says, I was there with Jesus. And he says, We have a more sure word than that. It's funny how they talk about Scripture, isn't it? And he said, It's the prophets written. You know, Paul essentially says the same thing. He could have said, hey, Look, if you, if you get an angel. Okay, but he doesn't tell you the gospel like I've already delivered it to you, Galatian churches. He didn't say that. Uh, uh, like an angel, like he's, he's probably a false angel. He says, if an angel from heaven, that's how strongly he speaks, says to you something different than I've already said to you, let that angel from God be a curse. That is speaking strongly about your sure ultimate guidance. But no, 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 no. We use the Bible. We always use the Bible. 
Pentecostals, us charismatics, and okay, here's the other big problem with that. I don't know if this is number three or four or two or whatever this is, but it is this tendency to think the Bible's a Ouija board. I'll just pick a little verse. Okay, as I read, what I really want is God to move on me without even thinking about how did that sentence connect to the one before and what's the content. And reading and understanding that meaning has been delivered to the page. But no, they use it and come up with all kinds of crazy... I see heads nodding, so I'm not the only one who's experienced that stuff. Okay, those are negative consequences. Now, positives. I think it's possible to spit out sticks. And then... Eat the hay. So, first positive is that the charismatic movement as a whole has forced to the front burner the issue of having a real, a tangible, experiential relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. And I think we all need to constantly be reminded to obey the Scripture. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. There is always a danger in having the Holy Spirit just be a fact of history. A danger of just having the Holy Spirit be a fact of orthodoxy, doctrine, and not an experience. And the charismatic movement has helped push that to the forefront, built in its way through the church. It has also forced to the forefront you ought every day understand how desperate you are to commune with God and not just do formal, dead religion. See, that's very different than the church that I was raised in. Holy, oh, Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's what happened when we baptized you as a baby. Doctrine. Oh, in the seventh grade, I made my holy confirmation. I didn't know what it was until... What happened there when that guy with a kooky hat came, you know, the card? That's when the Holy Spirit came on you. Okay? It's doctrine. I know the Holy Spirit from a hole in the wall. I wasn't even a Christian. Okay. So for whether it's Roman Catholicism, like where I was raised, or Episcopalianism, or Lutheranism, etc., a high church, sacramental churches, we, low church evangelicals, we, we, we have the same kind of tendencies at times. Just come up and say a prayer, and now you're a Christian. Oh, you don't feel anything? That's okay. You're not supposed to feel anything. You believe it, right? See the Bible, it's that it. That's how you teach them, right? That's what you're supposed to tell people. It doesn't matter what you feel at all. What, what, what do you mean? Do you mean don't feel any desire for Christ? No love for Christ? Really? Don't let anyone ever talk you out of it. You ask Jesus in your heart, you're saved. We have our own kind of crazy, doctrinal, unbiblical problems. All right, second, positive, at least I think, of the charismatic movement is that it has affected corporate worship in the sense of bringing to many people more of a freedom of worship. A worship of one's joys in God instead of mere formality. I just think that's a positive. Now, again, and I used the analogy earlier of a football game 
being a fan or a, a mother falling to the floor, we can all train ourselves not to express what we really feel. It doesn't mean that. So I am positive there are lots of people. I, I, I'm pretty sure J.I. Packer is a Christian. Okay, that was kind of a joke. I think you, if you know J.I. Packer, he's, what is he, 90-something now? And I think all his life, he worshipped God probably like this while singing. And probably had more of a genuine worship going on daily in his life and while he's singing than, not all, but many people, because they're in a Pentecostal or charismatic circle, who go like that. And, and they're not worshiping God really at all. It's just a cultural thing. I'm very aware of that. But in general, to the extent that that is, J.I. Packard, don't you, I think he, when he gets to heaven, because he's going to get out of that culture of his Episcopalianism, that, that he might, I don't know what he'll do. Okay, I don't Am I making any sense? Do I, I don't know. Am I just, okay. All right. It just seems to me that when there's a freedom, I feel that, can I, am I allowed to actually express anything I feel? It seems that when the church gets together and does it, it's a good thing. And something else that, about the charismatic movement is that it's brought up something about, uh, you know, maybe there's a time to linger a little bit. Just, we're not in a hurry. Let some music play. Sing Amazing Grace. We're lingering here. I don't, I don't know. All right. Now let me skip that one, skip that one. We're getting late. Third, the charismatic movement, positively, I think, reminds us of body ministry. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, with the empowerment for ministry. In other words, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Yeah, I went to my church. Went to church, listen, yeah, you go home. But it's body ministry. Constantly pushes to the forefront. Have you reached out to anybody lately? Fellow Christian. Or evangelistically with unbelievers. You pray, pray, oh God, what gifts do I have? How can I, I want to be used by the Holy Spirit. Okay, if I can't label any gifts, that's okay, but could you work in me today and cause me to encourage somebody? Or comfort somebody? Or lovingly rebuke somebody, or evangelize somebody. It just seems that it might have helped push more of that life, body, ministry instead of just the clergy. Kind of does it. And finally, with the charismatic emphasis on affections. I, I use I love Edwards' word. This old word, affections. With the emphasis on your affections, your hearts, your guts, your down here <sighs> desires, feelings. With an emphasis on that, it is helped with a continual admonition that Christianity is not merely doctrine. That faith is not merely agreeing with some biblical facts, but that ongoing faith in Christ is a response of our hearts to the truth of doctrine, to the truth 
of Christ our High Priest at the right hand of God, to the truth of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And how important is it for people like me? If okay, let me let me use the historical term. I try never to do this on Sunday morning. I'm gonna do it for theologically reformed type people who love and ought to love exposition of the Bible, who think logic is indispensable for the Christian life, who love linear reasoning and arguments. In other words, the book of Romans. Listen to what one of the, I think, top-notch New Testament scholars over the last three decades writes, D.A. Carson. Quote, Although I find no biblical support for a second blessing theology, what we talked about last few weeks, he says, I do find support for a second, third, fourth, or fifth blessing theology. Although I find no charisma, meaning gifts, biblically established as the criterion of a second endowment of the Spirit, I do find that there are degrees of unction, blessing, service, and holy joy, along with some more currently celebrated gifts associated with those whose hearts have been specially touched by the sovereign God. Although I think it extremely dangerous to pursue a second blessing attended by tongues, I think it no less dangerous not to pant after God at all and to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher and complacent, orthodox, but dead, sound, but soundly asleep. There is a tendency, and some of you know it, to come into clearer, Biblical understanding of the doctrines of God. Expositional preaching. You find that your mind starts to even work better because you're starting to work through stuff like that. And you start to love it. There has been and will always be the danger, therefore, for knowledge to puff up. But love, which only comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit, is what's going to edify. We who I think get many of the core doctrines right, and we don't like shallowness, we want depth, and should continue to pursue depth, don't ever forget that the Holy Spirit is not only the cause of faith, but our faith, biblically, is the cause of being filled with the Holy Spirit. How else are we to obey the command, be being filled with the Holy Spirit? Christianity is not merely glorious theology. It is glorious theology. But theology is not the goal. Theology is the means to the goal of worshiping. 
pursuing your happiness, your joy in God is the essence of worship. And therefore, oh, how important good theology is. We're called to constantly think God's thoughts in Scripture after Him. Think deeply. Let the Bible change what we feel and what we think. And then feel appropriately about what you think clearly about in the doctrines of God laid out in Scripture. Let's pray. Again, Father, as You've done in my life over this last week on differing days and really sensing my desperateness to overcome my flesh and to be filled with Your Spirit and to come to repentance again and again and softness of my heart and to commune with You. Would You continue to do this in our lives here as a community? as we practice the means of grace of praying Bible reading reading good thick theology books evangelizing singing oh we covet your suddenlies and more than that Lord in this world today would you open the eyes of so many churched people Would you fall upon this land and open the eyes of unchurched people so that they will see and love and appreciate the glorious doctrines of grace? Oh, would you bring those suddenlies like you did so powerfully in the 1740s? We yearn for it, Lord. We yearn to see you glorified in the hearts of even many, many, many more in this world. 